Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People program. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing okay wherever you are. Today on the program, my guest is A.M. Holmes, author of the new novel, The Unfolding. I'm always curious about what is true for each person. For me, that's also the way to avoid caricature or stereotype because each person to me is always unique and organic to their own life and their experience. And so that is both, I would say, the beauty and the fun and the challenge of writing. All right. That was A.M. Holmes, author of the new novel, The Unfolding, available now from Viking. This book for me was a wonderful way to access the recent historical record in America. It is a sprawling work of fiction that examines, in a sense, what has happened to the United States over the past 15 years in particular. But it does so by drilling down into the specifics of a particular family in a relatively compressed period of time in, I believe, what, 2008 and early 2009, in the wake of Barack Obama's election to the presidency. So this is a political novel, and it is a novel that is concerned with power and with ideology, but it is also and primarily a novel that is concerned with family and relationships and character and identity and the ways in which history acts upon individuals and individuals influence history. It's about the ways that we relate with our own personal histories and the ways that these histories intersect with those to whom we are close. This is often a very moving book, a very insightful 
book at the levels of human relationship and psychology. It's also very funny. A.M. Holmes is a very sharp mind. She's great at dialogue and she has a remarkable facility when it comes to rendering the lives and manners of the American bourgeoisie, in particular, the political elite in and around Washington, D.C. Not just politicians, but the money men and women who encircle them and who have their big agendas. A.M. Holmes, it is worth mentioning, grew up in the D.C. area and has a great natural grasp of that place and those people. So if you're anything like me and you're interested in how politics works or doesn't work and what's going on with these people who we've entrusted with all of this power, and even if you're not, even if you have no interest in politics, but you've spent even a little bit of time over the past several years wondering how things got so messed up in this country, then I think the unfolding is for you. My conversation with A.M. Holmes is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of Night of the Living Res, the debut story collection by Morgan Talty. I just finished this book a couple of days ago, and it is just excellent and I can't shake it. Some of the stories knock the wind out of me. Night of the Living Res is set in a native community in Maine, and it explores what it means to be Penobscot in the 21st century and what it means to live, to survive, and to persevere after tragedy and carrying the weight of trauma. These are 12 searing, funny, compassionate, vivid, heartbreaking stories that really breathe life into a family and a community who are struggling with a difficult past and a future that is most uncertain. It's just a standout collection. And again, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I put it down. Again, it's called Night of the Living Res by Morgan Talty, available from Tin House. Go get your copy wherever you get your books. So a few orders of business before we get started. I just want to remind you that I do a weekly newsletter, an email newsletter once a week. If you want to sign up for that, it's free. Just go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. You can also sign up at bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. Again, it's free. It goes out once a week. I will not bombard your inbox with emails. It's like on Wednesday or Thursday it goes out and it's basically just a list of things that I've been reading and enjoying or thinking about and I share it with my subscribers once a week. So sign up for the newsletter if you're interested. Also, this show is offered freely. The entire archive is made available to listeners for free. So please support the show. You can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod you can get stuff as you move up the scale you can support the show for a buck every month or two bucks three five whatever it is that you can swing and as you move up the scale you can get merch so check it out at patreon.com slash other ppl pod also if you're a listener of this show and you would be so kind 
I would love it if you would rate and review the podcast wherever you listen, be it Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever it is, rate it and review it. That helps the show and the algorithm. It helps the show find new listeners. So please take a couple of minutes to rate and review. I have a novel that was published earlier this year. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my novel, go for it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you have feedback that you would like to send regarding this show, you can always email me. The address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. You can also DM me on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram. And I think that does it. I think that's all I needed to say. So, oh, and one more thing. As an order of business, the sound on uh, the interview with AM Holmes is going to sound slightly different. And the reason is I just got a new computer and it sort of fucked everything up for me in terms of my technology. Like uh, all the things that I used to use no longer worked because my old computer was so old. So I had to update everything and I'm in the process of sort of getting my new situation figured out. You know how this stuff works with technology. So it sounds perfectly fine, but there will be perhaps uh, a slight difference in the way that I sound now versus the way that I sound uh, in the interview. And that's just me sorting out technology and microphones and everything. So bear with me and let's get to today's episode. Again, my guest is A.M. Holmes. Her new novel is called The Unfolding. It is available now from Viking. A.M. Holmes is the author of 13 books, among them the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, The End of Alice, and another novel called Jack. She is also the author of some short story collections, including Days of Awe, The Safety of Objects, and Things You Should Know. A.M. Holmes writes for film and television and teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton. I am so pleased to have her on this program for the first time. It feels overdue, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is A.M. Holmes, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Unfolding. I was actually right here in this apartment. I bought a new TV for the occasion. I upscaled from my college TV, the 13-inch, to what seemed like a really big one. I think it was probably 26 inches, seemed enormous at the time. And I invited people over to watch the uh, election results. Barack Obama, victorious in 2008. Seems like a lifetime ago. Yes. And, and here, so I live right by Washington Square. And immediately, I mean, you heard cheers outside. You heard fireworks. We all ran out of the apartment into the streets. Uh, it, was, it was pretty wild and pretty wonderful. In retrospect, to me at the time, it seemed like we had turned a corner and had cleared. I, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that like racism was over or anything silly like that, but just that we had cleared something in our national makeup in our history. And I was so wrong. <laughs> uh, I look back on that and I'm just like, man, <laughs> I totally underestimated yeah. the anxiety that. Obama's election was going to cause mm -hmm. a lot of people in this country. And your book speaks to this. It opens 
on November 4th, 2008 at the Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix. You have, uh, for your reader, an introduction to the three main characters in the novel. First of all, uh, a gentleman who is known as the big guy, who I believe is a billionaire. Uh, and his, I think he is a billionaire, yes. <laughs> yes, he's a billionaire, we can safely say. Like his exact net worth is a little bit uh, vague, but he's very, very yes, wealthy. Yes, and that was purposeful on my part. And then his family, his daughter, uh, his daughter Megan, who is, I believe, a senior in high school. Yes. And very precocious and very bright and coming of age and kind of coming into her own in the over the course of this novel. And then his wife, Charlotte, who is Texan by birth to the manor born, I believe. She's from a wealthy Texas family, but is going through a transformation of her own uh, over the course of this novel as it pertains to addiction, her sense of self, and family secrets, shall we say. Yes. Um, so I was immediately drawn into this novel and the way that it so beautifully weaves together the fictional and the real. John McCain, a lot of like actual figures, political figures make cameos in this novel. And at the outset, we're seeing John McCain lose the 2008 election and we're seeing the big guy and his family at close range. Yes, absolutely. I think for me, I wanted to I say I would say recognizing that Barack Obama's election, on the one hand, landed with many people, as you described, as a sense of a, a, a tie, you know, a, 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 a sea change, and the idea that that things were going to be very different in this country, and that we'd sort of gotten to a new stage, and that there was a sense for many people of hope and opportunity, and that people would have a chance to participate in the political process who had been excluded from it for, you know, all through history. And that being people of color, women, you know, it, it was a huge opening. And I think you're right to say that it caused, you know, a kind of anxiety that we didn't anticipate. I think also a kind of really profound existential fear among a big piece of the population. And so, you know, looking at the, the, evolution of our country, both from before Obama was elected, because I also look at the election where I went to sleep thinking Al Gore had won, and I woke up and it turned out that wasn't true, although it might have been true, but it wasn't going to happen that way, which is fascinating. And from Obama to where we are now, you know, I, I think we've seen just enormous fracture in our both political process and our culture and society. So I guess as somebody who often looks at things from almost the least likely point of view, I wanted to look at that experience from the point of view of people who saw themselves as lifelong Republicans, who saw themselves as victims of what might happen were Obama to be their president. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, there's a great quote in the book from the big guy. I'm going to read it. He says, I can't live like this. The big guy tells Charlotte, who is his wife, quote, I can't spend the next 30 years watching it all come undone. And the the thing that sticks with me is the it. What is it? What is it that's all going to come undone because Obama is elected president? That's a super good question. I would say, you know, the big guy and his friends talk a lot about their desire to protect and preserve their vision of America. And the it is, I would say, on the one hand, a classical vision of America and really the world that they have inhabited. So when one looks back at this country and the founding fathers and so on, the founding fathers did not want everybody to vote. They did not want women to vote. They did not want men of color to vote. They really only wanted wealthy men who owned land to vote. And so I think that's part of the the it. It goes all the way back. And I think that level of privilege, racism, sexism, which is in a way what I'm talking about in this book without ever really overtly saying, hey, that's what's at stake here. But I'm fascinated by that, really. And I'm fascinated by the way in which all of that has in the last, you know, 10 years risen up again with with ferocity. I mean, I look at, you know, what happened with Roe versus Wade in the last few months and everyone's like, how did that happen? And we even thought that the people, you know, the justices who were confirmed who were nominated by Trump sort of seemed to say, well, that's settled law. And then apparently it wasn't. So, you know, it makes one worried. And and looking at that in conjunction with things like the difficulty that many people have in casting their vote. So, you know, whether it's about mail-in votes, whether it's about, you know, uh, people being taken off the voting list, being able to force to provide forms of identification and so on that are beyond what is actually required by law, there is a lot that goes on in this country that makes it so people can't vote. So I find that, you know, really compelling and worrisome. Sure. And when did you begin? You began this novel not long after Obama was elected, correct? Yeah. I mean, I started feeling like, you know, in, in, in probably by 2012, 2013, a couple things. One is that I felt like the political establishment had sort of lost touch with the American people in both sides, not not unique to any one party, but that that there was it had gotten so kind of big and bloated as its own system that it was no longer talking to people. And, and that dovetailed with the rise of what we now call dark money. So when you know Obama was elected and when McCain was running, if somebody gave $100,000 to a campaign, that was a terrific amount of money and that bought you influence. Those numbers have exponentially inflated. So now we have people like the guy 
from the Federalist Society who just put in over one point, I think $1.8 billion. And you think that the difference between that and a hundred thousand bucks, as they call, you know, is crazy. And the way in which all of that money that is not only not really traceable or trackable, but also goes to think tanks and, you know, sort of disinformation or propaganda campaigns and the way in which that piece of it too, of the impact of the internet is I think in some ways massively unaccounted for in our history at the moment. Yeah, I think there was a Supreme Court decision and I'm forgetting the name of it that happened while Obama was president that made it so that these gigantic dark money donations did not have to be public. And that I think when when this era in history is written will I think be given a lot of airtime. That was a pivotal decision that had a big effect that maybe people don't realize. And then in a related way, and this speaks to what you were talking about with regard to this like billion dollar plus dark money donation from the Federalist Society or from a, you know, a Federalist Society sympathizer yeah. is uh, a guy named Leonard Leo. Yeah. I think Leonard Leo is somebody who operates in the shadows, but whose impact on American politics and American public life and American life in general has been seismic. Exactly. But that's exact. Yes, that is exactly what I'm writing about. And when the big guy pulls together this cohort of men that are, you know, dub themselves the forever men, that's who they are. They are men who, you know, have made money in any number of ways and are now using that money to more than influence, but using that money to change the rules and to literally change opinion because we now know how you use the internet and how you use social media to shape how people think. And that's way more dangerous than than we ever realized. Have you thought about the Obamas reading this novel? I couldn't help but think of that. I was like, what if Barack and Michelle got their hands on this? Have you tried to get them a copy? You know, it's funny. I should get them a copy. I didn't get them a copy. I actually, at one point, was going to, through friends, give it to uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. And then I thought, no, because it just seemed in a way, you know, I was so both profoundly aware of obviously what happened you know, when when Trump won over Hillary. And again, we all thought it was a shoe-in that Hillary was going to win. And I remember I had already written much of this, but when that happened, that evening, I was actually at a very wealthy person's apartment in New York City. And when it became clear that things were not going well, it was fascinating because it was the husbands who were like, honey, I got to go home. I got to go to bed. And at like, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, they were like, I got to get out of here. And that was fascinating. And then the wives were a little bit, but what about the Hillary cupcakes? And all the cupcakes here have Hillary's face on them. And it was sort of like their their default a little bit was, I have to stress eat, you know, these cupcakes in mass. Um, and that was interesting and very upsetting. So I, I somehow thought, you know what, I can't give this to the Clintons because they've been through so much in terms of that election really being in some ways taken from her, I think, in ways that probably we don't even account for. And then the fact also that, you know, she and Obama were vying for that nomination in 2008. Well, I want to talk to you about identity and politics, because this is something that I think about quite a lot when I have these internal debates with myself, where I'm not necessarily debating with myself, I'm debating with other people internally. (laughs) You know, I'm a great, I'm the greatest at winning debates in my own brain when I'm, you know, imagining myself like arguing with like one of my relatives or something. But 
I think a lot about identity and the way that we self-identify or our identities become entwined with a particular political party mm-hmm. to the point where I think it supersedes rational thought a lot of the time. You know, mm-hmm. we just are so entrenched in the ways in which we conceive of ourselves. And there's a passage in the book that I want to have you read because I think it speaks to this uh, in a lovely and insightful way. So if I could just have you read. Sure. So this is from page 347 uh, in the book. And it's a scene that takes place at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. on January 2nd of 2009. What does it mean to accept responsibility? Is it something he can do? Is it difficult to look in the mirror and see oneself not as one wishes one was, but as one is? How does one live with what they see? The fallout of one's life, one's decisions, habits, and assumptions, the things that have been taken for granted, power, money, privilege, and dare he say it, the color of his skin. That's what's got him and the forever men so upset. They they woke up and discovered they were not on top anymore. It was a rude awakening after hundreds of years and they're taking it hard. It's not just that Obama won. It's as though the founding fathers were assassinated. The truths they held self-evident have become a moving target. If he was to say that they were gaslit by history, he wouldn't be taking responsibility. He would be sidestepping his role in history. The big guy can't sleep. What if you thought you were a good guy? What if you needed to believe that with all your heart, and yet you woke up and for the first time you knew that you were an asshole? There's a lingering sense of disbelief. You know that you're an asshole, and yet you want to find a way around it. You know it's true, and still there is some ember deep within you that won't allow you to admit it. That ember is linked to how you see yourself as a man. So I think each of us, especially those of us who have an interest in politics, sees ourselves as a hero <laughs> in, our, in our own little story. Right. You know, yeah. we all know what's best and we all have such strong opinions. One of the things that I can't help but notice as an obsessive follower of politics is how it's this rare area of interest where people who actually don't follow it at all have incredibly strong opinions about yes. it. And I'm always like, well, wait a minute, if, if you were betting on a sports game and you're talking to a guy who reads the sports news obsessively every day, wouldn't you put more weight in his opinion or her opinion than you would in your own if you have absolutely no interest in sports? You know what I'm saying? Like this is yeah, the totally. kind of like conversation I'll have with knows, myself. Yeah, someone who knows the statistics knows who the players are, what the history is. I mean, I think that's, to me, that's also one of the things that is so disturbing about Donald Trump and the people that are investing in him on every level is they have no sense of history, no sense of where things come from, and yet they feel absolute entitlement to just say whatever they want and to present it as though that's absolutely the way it is. And it drives me crazy, of course. Right. I mean, yeah, it's like it's like uh, reality is this malleable thing. And I remember there's a quote. I think I've even cited it on this show before in a prior episode for some reason. But it's a quote from Karl Rove that I'm going to butcher. But it has something to do with the fact that he's like, we, you know, we make it we create history now. You know, like reality is is malleable. Like we can just kind of tell you what it is rather than have to. Um, honor some set of agreed upon facts. And that's a very dangerous place for a democracy to be. 
Exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly where we are. And I think it's incredibly dangerous. And, you know, when Kellyanne Conway made that comment, well, there are alternative facts. And I thought, no, they're not. And I will say also further, as a fiction writer, to live in a world where suddenly fact becomes nebulous and like a liquid, right? So you can like, you can just pour added fact all over things. That's really, really scary and really, really dangerous because we suddenly live in a country where information, as you call it, reality, we could call it fact. No one is sure where that is and where the pins are that are holding it down. And that is just potential disaster for a democracy. Mm, yeah, in order like, to function, we need to agree that there are things that are true and not true. And I was thinking the other day, like, say one of these people who's running now, what happens if an election denier is elected to office? Do we, as people who don't believe in that, say, oh, you weren't elected. We, we're denying your election as an election denier. But there's no end to where it would stop and start. Um, and I would say we can't function as a democracy if we deny the results of elections or if we continue to make it impossible for people to cast their votes. I look at Australia where you have to vote. It is a requirement for every person of age to vote. And I think that's what we need. We need every person to be required to vote and we need no electoral college and keep it clean and simple. I couldn't agree more. Compulsory I'm for office. Yes, that's your stump speech. I love it. I'm on board. I'm on board immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like so many of the arguments that we're having nowadays that are front and center, one of the things that frustrates me about them is that I don't even think they're really all that explicitly political. Uh, you know, arguments about whether or not we should have a healthy and functioning democracy should not be the interest of one particular political party. Exactly. And yet it's presented as such. You know, you start to talk about, hey, you know, this election denying is crazy. And, you know, you'll have somebody say, well, you're just in the tank for Biden. I'm like, no, I'm right. not. I'm but, in the right, tank. But, I'm in the tank for a functioning republic. Right. And then, by the way, here's one for you. Who does the flag belong to? Because suddenly it seems as though the flag just belongs to the far right. And it's like and then we look at, you know, as, as liberals or Democrats or whatever we want to call ourselves, we see people flying the flag and we're like, that's not OK. Or we're not we're not like them. And like, what is that? It's our flag, too. It's the flag. It's not their flag. And I think that's exactly the same thing. I'm a big fan of the flag. And I think that people who are not uh, of the political right have every bit as much claim to it and should should uh, wrap themselves in it, claim it. You know what I'm saying? We I have know. To... We got to take back the flag, Brad. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's wrong. I think there's some truth to that, you know, because this is not touch football. <laughs> No, but but the country's ideals, you know, the country's got a lot of problems and this whole idea of making it great again has never made any sense to me because I don't think it ever was. I think it's a it's an obviously a, in a state of constant evolution and a, hopefully a moving ever so slowly toward um, realizing its finest ideals. But those ideals really are fine, you know, and they're worth yes. fighting for. I mean, what else are we going to do uh, as a people in terms of how we organize ourselves like we have to we have to articulate i think what we're aiming for uh, and where our highest heights right. are right right and and i think it's important you know one of the things that is what this country is about was the the dream of liberty and of the ability for people to create their own futures and 
we somehow decided as as our democracy has evolved and worn on that in order to preserve the futures of some, we have to limit the futures of others. And that's that is really not in keeping with what the ideals were and I think should be. I think we need to, you know, it's it's interesting too the ways in which this incredible ongoing sense of fracture keeps us apart from each other rather than thinking one of the joys of being in this country is the way in which we can come together and we can tolerate differences. And you don't have to agree, but we are a community of Americans and of people who care for other people and who came here from lots of different places and so on. And that sounds so now you think, well, that's way too progressive. That's darn socialist. Um, when? When did that happen? You look at the end of World War II and you look at the sense of patriotism and, you know, what we wanted for ourselves and each other. And you think, how did we get from there to where we are now? And Eisenhower would have you believe it was that rise of the military industrial complex. It was the rise of money for war. And like huge economic interest in seeing the yes, perpetuation of war. Absolutely. Yes. That's a pre that's a prescient and haunting speech. Yes, totally. And I, you know, I think back to the Republican Party of Dwight Eisenhower with a sense of grief. Like how far yeah. has the Republican Party descended, in my view, from where he was to where we are now? Uh, it's a big, huge change that I think he would be. I don't think he would recognize it, right? I mean, he would—he certainly wouldn't be on board with Trump. I cannot imagine. No, I mean, I think that's—I think that's also very interesting because it seems like there there is no moral core to the Republican Party anymore. It's—it's it's completely gone. And I look at people like Mitch McConnell and whatever, and I just think there's no, there's nobody there, and they will—they will do. And it's—it's it's like the men in the book. They say, you know, don't say, you know, they're like. Don't say power, say freedom. You know, the Republicans at this point have shown that they will go to absolutely any length, any length to keep power and to preserve their power and their ability to sort of, you know, dominate the courts, the government, and so on. At the risk of destroying democracy and at the risk of absolute lawlessness. The That's pretty pathetic. Yeah. I mean, Nothing, and, you know. and, and just... Uh, incredibly dangerous. I mean, they didn't even have a platform. It was literally just a blank check to Trump, if you recall. I mean, yes. that to me said it all. I was like, oh, they don't even stand for anything. They won't even articulate their beliefs so that they have the flexibility to change on a dime as Trump's whims dictate. Well, and, and I mean, Trump has no vision for America. Trump has no investment in America. Trump has no even interest in America. Trump has only one interest, and that is the inflation of and elevation constantly of Donald Trump, really, you know, as an authoritarian figure. Well, it's what pretty we're talking wild when you stop and think about it, you're like, OK. We have I mean, what, what's the old there's like an old Chinese proverb, like may you be like lucky enough, or what is it about living in interesting times? I'm totally yes. butchering it, but you know, we are living in interesting times. We can say that at the very least. It's both a Yiddish and a Chinese proverb. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, but what we are speaking to here is history. Right. And your book is very much concerned with history as a theme. 
not only in the ways in which it weaves the actual with the fictional, but also with the characters themselves. The big guy fetishizes American history and the founding mm-hmm. fathers in the way that I think conservative men of a certain era tend to, you know, like right. this, Absolutely. this sort of just adoration with uh, the founding fathers. There's a great scene in the book where he's playing war games in his basement on his pool table, I believe, mm-hmm. with actual little toy soldiers. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, there's like a little boy inside of him that just absolutely idealizes American, the American past and the the white men who founded it, to say the least. And then Concurrent with that, you have Megan, his daughter, as a senior in high school, who also has a deep interest in history and who is imagining, I think, the ways in which she might write herself into it as a citizen Mm -hmm. in her adult life. Yes, absolutely. And I think for me, part of what was interesting about that was realizing that both with Charlotte and with Megan, I wanted to sort of talk about the evolution of women's lives in a sort of multi-generational kind of a way. And on the one hand, you know, I think many people think, oh, wow, women have come so far, even like since Nixon was president. Remember, Nixon talked about how he didn't think women belonged in the workplace. And now, you know, not only are there so many women in the workplace, they're also in the workplace because families need two incomes and so on. But the realization that Megan has that when you learn about history, you don't hear about women in history. Um, and that is actually taught entirely separately. So one of the recognitions I've had in, in recent years is that we live in a country where there are histories and we still haven't been able to bring that into our school systems. We haven't been able to bring that into conversation. The way you know we study basically white male history until such time as someone breaks off and takes a class in women's history or African-American history. But that weaving together has not happened yet. And so as Megan begins to both realize that and sort of begin to think about who and how she wants to be as a person and how she realizes she doesn't want to just be a bystander in history. She wants to be in history and claim a place there. I I kind of love her because she has the beginnings of this awakening also that she may not see the world in the same way that her parents do. You know, I think that when you were talking at the very beginning about sort of the narratives and the way we tell ourselves stories about things, many people or most of us grow up and we think or we believe the narrative that our parents believe. We believe what we're told about who we are, where we came from, what we stand for. And only as one kind of goes through adolescence and and moves a little bit further into the world with a certain amount of autonomy, do you begin to start to think, oh, how do I see the world? How do I, you know, view things potentially differently? And that's often for many families and many people, you know, a source of tension, right? When the kid comes home from college is like, oh, I'm taking this other course or, oh, do you know the economic system is flawed or all those different things. And we always describe, you know, colleges, you know, they always talk about those like hotbeds of liberal activity. And it's really just not about liberal or not liberal. It's about beginning to define oneself independent of whatever the narrative they've grown up with is. So to me, that was really pivotal about Megan. And I love the fact that by the end of the book, not giving away anything, you know, the big guy has come to realize, wow, I have this great daughter and I've lamented for so long that I don't have a male successor, but this kid is amazing. And wow, she is going to follow in my footsteps. Well, at the same time, he's still his same oblivious self because it's just, he's assuming She'll follow in his footsteps. He's not still seeing her 
for who she is and the idea that she may have a very different point of view. And so I kind of love that because he sort of evolved in his own way and sort of had some of his own kind of coming to consciousness. And yet still he's, you know, the big guy. Well, I mean, yeah, somebody worth that much money doesn't get told no very often. That's an insulated way to live. And I think it can warp, it can warp the way you view the world. I mean, it would have to. Yes. I mean, my, my understanding and experience of, you know, the 1% and the 1% of the 1% is absolutely, you know, people are living in a bubble and are protected from, you know, most of reality, but it also gives them a very, very distorted experience. Well, yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you about because <laughs> your your book is so excellent at capturing uh, like bourgeois manners, uh, you know, right. the, the Washington aristocracy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was wondering, like, did you go undercover? Do you have like an invisibility <laughs> cloak like Harry Potter? <laughs> How did you get to see? I mean, you really, it really feels like you know these people. Was there a research right. process? There's a huge research process. And, you know, part of it is in that same way of, of, of sort of talking about the least likely characters to tell a story. Often when we hear about the, the right or the conservatives in America, we hear it from the point of view of like the downtrodden. So we have like hillbilly elegy or, you know, books that are illustrations of what it is to be poor in this country or struggle with that. And to me, the very wealthy and the very conservative wealthy and the way in which they exert their power and wealth and, and all of that stuff was really, really interesting and important to me to try to inhabit and illustrate. So yes, tons of research. I mean, I'm always doing research. And I grew up in Washington, D.C. So I'll say, you know, in a very different, I grew up in a, in a household that was probably sort of socialist and where my parents were always marching on Washington and all kinds of things. But I also distinctly remember I was at a, I don't know how, as a Jewish kid from Washington, D.C., my parents sent me to a Christian Southern camp in North Carolina. <laughs> and I happened to be at this Christian camp when Nixon resigned. And there was this huge moment awakening for me as I'm seeing my counselors sobbing and saying, you know, I bet mama's having a heart attack and so on. And I remember thinking, I bet there's a party in Georgetown. And realizing that this city that I'd grown up in, which always seemed to me like a dysfunctional small southern town, was actually in charge of everything in this country and, and realizing how big this country is and how that dysfunctional small southern town of Washington, D.C. didn't seem to understand the scale and scope of America in the most you know, classic sense. So all of that, I would say, as much as the book doesn't all take place in Washington, it is absolutely my Washington book and about the absurdity and strangeness of Washington. Well, yeah, and I know that this has been said many, many times, uh, but I could not help as a Los Angelino notice parallels between that insular Washington clubby aristocratic culture where everybody's obsessed with the latest soap opera and who's got power and who doesn't have power and all that kind of stuff. It's exactly the same sort of bullshit that we it do is. in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 100 percent. And it's funny because, you know, when I was a little bit older, I spent a lot of time in L.A. and I thought, these are the only two cities I've ever spent a lot of time in that are the same in that way, that are sort of company towns where everybody knows everybody, people don't want to leave, they fail upward, or they go and work like in a think tank, something kind of parallel, but they're still involved. And where also there is a peculiar thing where I noticed so much in LA and in DC, that there is like the idea on the one hand, it's exclusive and, and, and you have to get on the inside of it. 
but it's not hard to get on the inside of it. And how once you're on the inside, you see and hear everything. It's amazing how, in a way, vulnerable and revealing uh, people will be. Well, and I feel like Washington culture has really changed uh, over the course of your lifetime. I mean, it seems yes. like maybe when you were younger, it had a more provincial, if that's the word for it, kind of feel. But it, it was also the case, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but I've read that it was a a much different culture in the sense that people came to Washington to serve in government, in particular as elected officials. And when their service was done, they left. Yes. And nowadays they stick around. Exactly. And they go to work for a think tank or they lobby and they cash in on their yes. service, which is kind of a depressing loop. Yes. And so that sort of level of person in Washington just grew exponentially from the end of the Nixon administration till now. When, when I was a kid, we literally got new classmates every four years. You'd be like, bye. And they would leave. And then you'd be like, hi. And, you know, people's dads would come. And then all of a sudden you didn't get new classmates anymore. And people stayed. And there was a lot of money to be made. And, you know, think tanks and lobbying just blossomed. And it, I think it changes things in the very big way, because I think it also makes all of it in terms of how one steers the government so much more difficult. I don't think that that someone can come in, you know, and think they're going to create enormous change. I mean, you get some things accomplished, but it's really difficult. And I feel like politicians nowadays, I, I don't know what the median income or net worth is among people who are in either the House of Representatives or the Senate, but it has got to have gone up significantly. Everybody's cashing in. Absolutely. I mean, I think that was the other thing, too, that that to be a civil servant and to work in Washington, people didn't necessarily earn a lot of money at all. I mean, it's funny. So when I was truly like a little kid, Hubert Humphrey was the vice president. There was not a vice presidential re residence. He lived uh, on a street not far from where I lived in a very modest house and, and got he didn't get driven to work and he would wave to us as we were at our school safety patrol positions, you know, but it was a whole different world in that sense. And absolutely the amount of money that politicians can make, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm confused even slightly about the fact that I think that they are making a lot of money somehow on the side while being paid for their government services. Like, you know, Ron DeSantis, how's he making money? You know, how's Matt Gates paying his bills? I feel like there's, there's, you know, cash flow that we're not accounting for. It's certainly not the 150,000 or whatever dollars that the salary is. No, no. I mean, what Mitch McConnell's net worth has skyrocketed. Exactly. I mean, to yeah. the, you know, like into the eight figures, right? Eight well, figures. And Cheney, I mean, Dick Cheney and Halliburton and so on. I mean, that's, it's, it's been that way for quite a while now. And I think it's, it's, it's so dangerous and it is exponential because it also speaks to the fact that there is no relationship then between the people who are representing citizens and the citizens themselves. Right. They're, so they're out for themselves. And there's another oh. aspect, another aspect to this that's been in the news a bit lately, but should be in the news more is that people who are serving in Congress should not be allowed to trade stocks. Like, I, at least I don't think so, because they have they're right. privy to all this inside information. Like, you wonder how they're making money hand over fist. It's because they're sitting in these committee rooms hearing from business insiders about what's going to happen. And then they go to the their stockbroker and buy and sell and cash a in. A thousand I, percent. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes. 
I'm, yeah, I mean, just yes, it's it's crazy. Well, this book, we've talked about weaving, and I read, yeah. I think, an interview that you did about you were talking about your aspirations for this novel, and you said that you wanted it to be a weave of the great American novel and the intimate domestic. And I thought that was a very nice way of putting it because it, it really defines what you're up to in kind of a twofold sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things too is that, how do I even say this? And I haven't, I, have, I haven't said this before, so I'm not, I'm not sure how it comes out exactly, but I think there's something also that we, we lose track of, which is that this large scale political system and all the stuff that's going on absolutely also has a huge impact on our intimate and domestic lives and selves and experiences in this country. And I feel like I'm like whispering because it's a new secret. But, you know, the other day they came out and said, all adults over 60 should be screened for anxiety. I'm like, that's a new recommendation. I'm like, <laughs> well, people are suffering, but we're suffering because with this fracture and confusion and the idea that we are becoming tribalized and just, you know, have to hide in our homes because there's a virus out there and then there's other crazy people around the corner and it, I mean, yeah, it's stressful, but I, I really wanted to also talk about how the large scale, both in our actual country and in our homes and families and the intimate domestic are inextricable. And traditionally in literature, they are not seen together. They are kind of, you know, oh, it's the big book, you know, oh, it's, you know, Tom Wolfe, Bonfire of the Vanities versus, you know, a novel about a family. Um, ordinary people, you know, <laughs> remember that one? Oh yeah, um, the Robert Redford. Yeah, right, exactly. Judith Guest, and I don't even know how I remember that right now. But yeah, uh, T Timothy Hutton, you know, wasn't Mary Tyler Moore in it? Or the, or of course, she was Margaret great Timothy. in it. She was great. But, right, but those those books that were so much about a family that was stricken, in a way, they're treated and they happen very differently than these sort of you know big books about American dream and American promise. Well, and I think what, what I'm thinking about as you talk about the domestic is social media. Yeah. And over the past decade, the ways in which these larger national issues and machinations, like political machinations, have really come home to us because we are siloed off by the algorithms to receive mm -hmm. feedback that mostly agrees with our biases. Um, that's how they kind of keep you angry and engaged and on the platform. But you're also friends with your aunt and uncle who might be operating from a different silo. So that is where I think people are maybe seeing one another as being at odds and a right. lot of that hostility. And I mean, I know so many people who've had this experience over the past decade in particular where political issues got really heated <laughs> and it almost always happened on like a Facebook wall. Right. Interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I have seen how in families and in conversation, the idea that somebody who believes, for example, that the COVID vaccine is like bad for you or that COVID isn't real or all of these different things, that was very, very disturbing. And, and also to see people lose their lives by buying into those things. When somebody starts to believe in something that we know is not real, it is akin to sort of when we lose people to a cult and it's scary and frightening and very hard to pull them back. 
because how do you how do you convince somebody who is seeing every day material that supports their point of view? And you're a hundred percent right. The algorithms slice these things narrower and narrower and narrower. So basically, you're only seeing what you already agree with, and you're only being shown what you've already indicated to the algorithm, which in some ways is smarter than our naive selves that believe we're getting the full picture. I think many people don't accept or realize that every time you go, whether it's on social media or you just Google something, Google delivers you back an answer based on everything it knows about you. And it knows probably now, we used to say it was 5,000 things. It probably knows like 50 million things about you. It definitely knows what you eat, what you wear, where you shop, how much money you have. And we go, no, it couldn't know all that. And it's like, yeah, it does. Because every piece of information that you put into the thing is swirled and sold, you know, on mega computers to other people who then just chew it up and deliver it back to, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds so awful to say, but I think it's so interesting that we haven't yet seen a sort of a full illustration of the way in which the algorithm sucks up what it knows about you, churns it, and then re-delivers it. Right. And so people are like, well, that that doesn't really happen. Or I'm very careful online. Or, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. good luck to you. Um, no, I, I talked to, uh, I talked to on this show, Rod, is it Roger McNamara? I think that's his name. He was one of the earliest advisors to Facebook and he wrote, he kind of had a come to Jesus or like a, you know, a moment, yeah. I think in 2016, where he realized the toxicity of Facebook and the danger mm-hmm. that it posed to uh, the Republic. Right. And he he kind of came out and called for Zuckerberg to do something, which of course Zuckerberg did not. And right. I, I had a very alarming conversation with him where I, I kind of had him in the room and I was like, so what should I use? And he's like, are you using, he's like, are you using Gmail? And I was like, yeah, he's like, oh boy. You know, like, I know that's what they yeah. said. It's funny. That's what somebody said to me recently. They said, don't use Gmail. And I was like, but it's funny. It's like, why not? I can't see why I shouldn't use Gmail. But is that because does Gmail like somehow you know, read my emails and then go like, okay, so it's size eight and a half shoe and a, you know, size 14 pair of pants and you know what I mean? Or whatever that is. Or what is the deal with that? Well, by the way, I believe Google is listening to this show. So you've just revealed (laughs) you're now going to get a lot of uh, shoe ads. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, I hate the part where they know. I I, I posted the other day because I thought it was very funny. I started seeing in my feed, ads for luxury apocalypse bunkers and at the same time a kind of underwear for people for periods which i'm old already but i have a kid you know and so i was like great so i'm gonna have like i'm gonna be bleeding to death in some bunker somewhere but it's okay you know you know what world is this in well to get back to the characters uh in your book because i this is an important point and i want to make sure to note it is that you have a cast of characters who are maybe a bit far afield from you Mm -hmm. Uh, and it could be easy to caricature them and yet they're drawn especially at the level of the intimate domestic which is where the heart of the book is they are drawn with a lot of compassion and i think that's important to point out this is not simply though there are satirical elements to the book and we're going to get to those in a second I really felt like this was your attempt 
to humanize and to really explore the humanity of the kinds of people who would have viewed uh, as the prime example, the election of Barack Obama as an existential threat without descending into caricature or just like, you know, good guy, bad guy dichotomies. Absolutely. So I think always for me, I am, I'm not interested if somebody is in, in whether someone is good or bad. I'm not interested in it. Are they likable? I'm interested in who are they as a person? I'm interested in what compels somebody to believe what they believe or to behave in the ways they behave. And I'm always curious about what is true for each person. And so that is, for me, that's also the way to avoid caricature or stereotype because each person to me is always unique and organic to their own life and their experience. And so that is both, I would say, the beauty and the fun and the challenge of writing. So, you know, when I'm working with the big guy and Charlotte and Megan, I am really there with them as, you know, looking at their family and the structure of the family and looking at the danger or the, the you know, the power of secrets and the ways in which each of them is trapped in a certain sense. And then, you know, when I'm looking at the big guy and his cohort, the forever men, that part purposely was pushed out a little bit more to the satirical because two reasons. One is I wanted to highlight and heighten what I think can happen when, and I don't think it's just men, I think there's an iteration, but when, when we break off into sort of single sex time spent the way in which these guys egg each other on and push each other to sort of extremes, but also to create a sort of, I would say, like a Dr. Strange lovey world in which these really terrifying things could happen. And then, of course, as I was writing those things, things were happening here on Earth in reality as we used to know it. And so I also kept thinking, well, how do I push it out even further? And then at a certain point, I was like, this is getting scary. <laughs> um, you know, and so that was interesting. But e to me, even those people, the, the forever men, there is a reality and a humanity to them. And when they say things that are, you know, kind of crazy about, you know, well, like, what are you talking about or how far are we going to take this? That to me also gets to where we are now, where it seems that there is no limit. There is no sense that, oh, we would never do that. Like the January 6th, you know, I would describe it as attack on Washington. We would never march in and try to reclaim, you know, the Capitol because somebody says to us this election is not, you know, valid. I mean, that that the fact that that all happened is to me wild, you know. Well, there's a quote in the book from one of these forever men where he says, sometimes you have to re-break a bone to set it right. We are breaking exactly. the we are breaking the back of America to set it straight. And uh, that really says uh, quite a lot about, I think, how people can get when they feel like they're in an existential crisis, it, almost like any any uh, means, if, if the mm -hmm. end is to, you know, save the country, if that's the way they're looking at it, then any mm -hmm. ends would almost justify it. It's almost like a state of war to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
And yeah. just just so listeners are are 100% clear, the Forever Men are modeled, I think, loosely on something that I have to cop to was new to me uh, as somebody who loves history but maybe doesn't know as much of it as he should. It's modeled loosely on the Eisenhower 10. Yeah. And it's a group of the, you know founded by the big guy. He's sort of the, the tip of the spear. But after Obama wins the election, he assembles kind of like an A-team um, <laughs> of really rich, powerful, exclusively white dudes, each of whom has a certain specialty, it seems, uh, or at least some of them are particularly specialized. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just curious to know, like, uh, the origin of the Forever Men. Like, how did you... Was there something? I, mean, I guess the Eisenhower Ten is what you were thinking of as you as you set about to fictionalize. Yeah, I mean, so the Eisenhower Ten, which I, I mean, I I knew about for a while, obviously, but were a group of ten men who Eisenhower decided he would send letters to, so that in case of nuclear disaster in this country, you know, nuclear war, not disaster like a Three Mile Island, but nuclear war, these ten men would be in charge of various aspects of. American life. So there would be someone in charge of agriculture and someone in charge of the banks and someone in charge of communications. And they were mostly civilians. The couple had military backgrounds. And he literally sent them each a letter that says, this letter serves to authorize you to be in charge of agriculture in America at such you know points, whatever. And can you imagine like some guy going up to a farmer and being like, hello, I'm in charge of agriculture now. I know it's all radioactive. But so that was... That was also the beginning of what has continued in this country, which were basically secret presidential orders that most of us know nothing about. And in fact, after 9-11, George Bush put a whole lot into effect that have never been rescinded, but are still in place. And, you know, it's funny when when people used to talk about there being a shadow government, I used to think, oh, that's what they meant. They meant all of these systems, including like backups of all the social security numbers and, you know, bunkers underground where all the senators will live and all this stuff. I don't think anymore that's what they mean by the shadow government, but there were all these contingency plans put into effect. So the big guy, I would say, taps these men who are from the judicial, who are from banking, from all these different areas to help him come up with this plan, modeled in part on the Eisenhower 10, but also really meant as an echo of things like what the Koch brothers are doing and what all of these different, I would say, far right, the Federalist Society, absolutely, you know, organizations, think tanks that also brand themselves with very innocuous, healthy sounding names like people who care about how we live or you know, <laughs> um, people who like to eat, I mean, whatever it might be. And so that was very interesting to me. And I think is also, you know, very, very dangerous because all of the I don't even want to call it information. All of the narrative that all of these organizations disseminate is not traceable, and they are very heavily funded. And we are constantly, all of us, seeing, reading, hearing things that we don't really know where they come from. And I think the average American who doesn't spend all day parsing news sources and you know all those things is getting often getting their news we hear more and more now from social media and it's like it's like eating you know spoiled food i mean i don't even think it's food you know it's just it's like i don't know it's like roundup you know it's like right. they're drinking roundup 
What's the answer? We got to regulate social media as a public utility. Is that the answer? I mean, I think, you know, I, I, you could sort of say that, and I'm, I'm not sure that that, I don't, I'm not sure how one would regulate social media, because the other piece of it, too, is like you'd say, well, how does that affect free speech? And even if I, I disagree with you, I fundamentally believe you have the right to say what you want to say. But I think, I think it, the cat is so far out of that bag, I don't even know what it would mean to regulate social media. Do you know what all, I mean? All I can think is just like that algorithm that feeds you things that confirm your biases. You got to get that out right. of there. So you get conflicting right. points of view. You know, like you've got to get right. a, more, a more accurate picture right. of the mosaic or something, you know? Right. But would that be a thing that we could legislate? You can't use the algorithm. No more algorithms. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I say, I, I say this about social media. I've had the same exact conversation with myself about cable news. Sure. And it always comes back to freedom of speech. Right. And, you know, I'm a pretty close to a freedom of speech absolutist, but it's hard not to look at the cable news ecosystem, particularly on the right, and not think to yourself like, Jesus, this is dangerous. Right. Like, there's got to be a stop to this. This can't be presented right. as news. Like, this isn't news, right. you know. And But then it's like, well, how does that infringe upon somebody's free speech? I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But it seems like something that just gets ever more toxic and dangerous yeah, with each I passing think, day. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also like, you know, one of the things that one of the editors said to me, my editor in England, she said, I'm confused by something in your book because the big guy talks about how he wants to preserve and protect democracy. And yet he's behaving in this way that seems counter to that. So what, what do you mean? And I said, oh, it's very clear. Democracy means different things to different people. And I think, you know, news means different things now to different people. So the idea that people are watching certain, you know, kinds of news and thinking that is information, that is fact, that is real, is a problem. But do we, can we reclaim the word news? Can we take away breaking? Breaking is in front of everything. Breaking news. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's so, it's so also set up now for there to be, we are now it's fully in a 24-hour news cycle in the sense, too, that newspapers now publish round the clock. So stories, you know, there's not just a thing where the newspaper comes out once a day. You know, it used to be there were three main channels. Everyone kind of got pretty much the same version of the evening news. The order of the stories was a little different, but it was not that divergent. And newspapers were published in the morning. Sometimes there were two editions in a day. But all day long, you didn't have stories that were published at 2 p.m. and updated at 3.33 p.m. and constantly evolving. So there's both a kind of desire to consume that that I think has been created probably by the media itself. You know, I think in some ways the media created Donald Trump because when he started his campaign efforts, all of the media outlets sent people to cover it because they thought this is an anomaly. This is unusual. He didn't buy ads. Remember, he just kind of got coverage all day, every day, because he was walking around saying things and inserting himself into American politics in a way that I would say, you know, a multiple time bankrupt, uh, you know, businessman never had before. Yeah, he was he bankrupt six times. I mean, you know, it was like uh, whatever filters, you know, had right. previously been 
part of American public life got completely removed. He would say mm-hmm. anything, do anything, and without shame, just an absolute yes. absence of yes. shame. Yeah. Um, what I want to I want to add one point of interest for me as a reader, as I was reading the parts of your novel that deal with the forever men. Yeah. And it has to do with, uh, well, first of all, you put a bunch of really rich white dudes in a room and you watch their egos bounce off of each other. It is just hilarious. You do a great job uh, of rendering the way the ways these guys react to each other. You know, it's not all that common for them to be in a closed space. Right with yes. people who are their financial equal or close to it and who don't necessarily uh, depend on them, you know, for sustenance or whatever. So it was exactly. just fun. Those scenes were fun for that reason. But there was also an absurdity to them and to this whole project of reclaiming America or restoring America that dovetailed for me with my experience of the Trump years. Because for all of its danger and all of its menace and all of its trauma and destruction, all the things, you know, the darkness of it, mm-hmm. it was also absurd and often funny in a really twisted way. And that needs to be said. Like, I think when I prior to Trump, if you would have said to me authoritarianism, the rise of fascism, a descriptor that I would not have come back at you with if I were asked to do so would be absurd or silly. Right. And yet this is the truth. And I've, I actually have had this corroborated by books that I've read or essays that I've read by people from, say, Eastern Europe who have lived under uh, fascist regimes. Yeah. Who explain this very clearly. There's an absurdity to it and it's intentional. Uh, Donald Trump made the country unserious he's a profoundly unserious character and a fatal and a fatalistic human being for whom tomorrow really doesn't matter it's just all about winning and today and ratings and that's it doesn't care about death you know i don't know but the the scenes with the forever men feel like maybe a precursor to that it carries some of that absurdity for me absolutely and and i think I, i i very much wanted them to be both absurd and dangerous. And I think what you're saying too about when you look at sort of some Eastern European literature, or even the books of Gary Steingart. So Gary is like, you know, totally funny. Um, and I think it's important to recognize humor as a way of both allowing one to dig deeper and to sort of break the surface tension, but also it's a way of dealing with horror, right? That absurdity, if we don't see it as absurd, it is totally horrifying, right, and and terrifying. So there is that piece of it, and there is also a piece of so much of it. You, I, with Trump, I kept looking at it, and you would think like this can't happen because it's so either naive or lame or pathetic or like how are people doing this or thinking this way or behaving like this, and no one seemed to notice that. And that also for people who are, as you would say, you know, rational and well-intentioned are just like like when he when he you know marches into lafayette square in reality not in my book you know with the bible or whatever or he has the the military buzzing the black black lives matter protesters i mean he could have accidentally killed both soldiers and people who have the right to be doing that right um so it's it is dark and crazy and filled with an incredible kind of entitlement 
which is that I am allowed to do whatever it is I choose to do. And, you know, very few of us, if any, ha- actually, is that true for? Have there been any responses to this book that have surprised you? There have been, I mean, I think it's always an interesting question in the sense that on the one hand, the book and often my work is somewhat satirical. And on the other hand, as you sort of noticed, it is quite realistic and compassionate and human, humanistic towards its its characters. And so I think it's surprising to me that some people want it to be one or the other. They want to know, are you making fun of America? And I think America is making fun of itself half the time lately, and that interests me. But difficulty in seeing that, difficulty sometimes in recognizing the way in which I would say racism and sexism, you know, has just was unleashed at, at and, and is, you know, clearly blossoming exponentially in relation to people's fear of losing power, white men's fear of losing power. So I have to ask you, since you've spent, you grew up in Washington, you know yeah. this world, you spent all these years writing this novel and thinking about these things. What is your sense of our near future? Are you hopeful? Do you have a sense that we might be able to right the ship or that things are tilting in a better direction now that we have uh, Trump out of power? Well, that's a very good question. I would say just taking it from the back, back to the front, do we have Trump out of power? Because Trump still, it's shocking to me, seems to have an enormous hold on the Republican Party. And I think, why? And what does it take for them to wake up and or what does it take to topple this guy? He's like a weeble. He, he won't fall down. And you think, what possibly will it be that will be the thing that takes him down? Because he has done so many things. And he does, he makes Nixon look like happy and healthy. You know, and you think, okay, that was pretty bad. I was there for that. So I think it's really worrisome. I mean, I think on the one hand, I, I look at Joe Biden and I think it's a bummer that he's not given way more credit. Uh, But it's interesting because the way he has governed and led us so far, it has been he has he has done what I think is a good thing for an old white guy, which is he has not claimed the space. He has he has accomplished great things, but doesn't go around saying, and I did this and I did that. And he actually has a lot of people around him doing really good work. Um, But somehow we we want our leaders to swell up and to be you know, larger than life. So I look at where we are now, and I would say in the book, by the end of the book, I have, there is a kind of optimism I have for Megan and her generation and what might come next. In reality, I think at this particular moment, we aren't there yet. We have, we have something that still has to happen because the Republican Party, were it to continue on its current path, becomes authoritarian. They, they have no interest other than that. We have to, I mean, I would just say to people, vote in the midterms, because I think if the Republicans win either House of Congress, but I think Mm -hmm. the House of Representatives is is their best bet right now, though it's right down down the middle. It could go either way. Right. But I just fear what, because the House is where I think a lot of the really radical, dogmatic, Trumpy people are. That's where a lot of the votes, that's where a lot of the votes in 2020 to sort of cancel the election came from, a shocking number. So I think if you empower those people again, they're going to wreak havoc. That's dangerous. Right. Right. And the other piece of that is that 
yes, please vote in the in the midterms, but also we need to make sure that people can vote. And, you know, all that sort of stuff, gerrymandering, and there's a joke about that in the book, you know, is gerrymandering a real person? Changing election districts to suit a particular party, that's not cool. So we can't, it, it just, it, it cannot, it cannot be a system that can be so easily manipulated for the benefit of, of others. It just needs to be everybody must vote, everybody gets to vote, and whoever wins, wins. Yeah, um, why is that so I mean, complicated? It's pretty basic, right? Exactly. You think, really? And and you feel like saying to people, so you don't want that. You don't want every person to win. And they're always like, well, there's voter fraud. I'm like, not really. Not really. You said know? said Trump's yeah. own election specialist exactly. leader guy who was it's, immediately ostracized for saying so. But right. I mean, you know, there's just no end to it. If we right. win, exactly. if we win, there's no problems. If we lose, right. it's fraud. That right. is unsustainable. Okay. Exactly. And it's well, also, by the way, there it's talk about poor sportsmanship. I mean, that's it's just like it's so like bad schoolyard third grade behavior. And you think, you know what? These are, as, as, as uh, I think Chris Hayes said yesterday when, when Bill Barr said, you know, and they dragged tr- Trump's children into it. He said, you know, they're not children, they're grown ass adults. These are grown ass adults running for office and, you know, need to play by the rules. I mean, you just cannot, it's, it's ridiculous. And if you don't play the right of the rules, you don't have a democracy. That is the very right. definition. That's right. So perilous times, um, yeah. but hopeful. Like I, ha- I think you have. To, I, as a parent, I feel like I have well, to have hope. Totally, right? How are you supposed to be like, well, kid, you're fucked. <laughs> you know, like, well, and I will say, as someone who who works with you know young people as a teacher and a professor, I think it's an incredibly stressful time for young people because, you know, COVID totally derailed them, and obviously, you know, everyone's like, I didn't see that coming. And their mental health is not good. And they also are like, what am I going to be? Who am I going to be? What world am I growing up into? Between the climate stuff and the political stuff, it's scary. Sure. Yeah, they're right to be uh-huh. scared. But I know, they are right to be scared. But they're also, I, think, I feel like, active and aware to a degree that my generation was not. So there's yeah. hope in that. You know, the yes. level the level of in touch, like the level of in touchness is yes. exceeds what has come before. And I like to, there's a strategic acumen, like politically in younger people and a toughness that I have learned a lot from. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, they're not fucking around, you know, and they're not maybe getting hoodwinked by politicians as easily as I was as a young person or believing, I I, I was more naive, I feel like. They're less naive and I respect that. Right, I do too. Uh, Well, I have loved talking with you and this book for me as a political junkie, was just a great way in to this material. It's not, you know, you could have written a, a work of straight history. You didn't do that. You could have written a, a book that is like explicitly political, but you didn't do that either. It is that, but it is also, as we've discussed, this great family story, which is really the heart of the book. And there are aspects to this book that we did not get into that I expl- I, I didn't want to get into them because I don't want to ruin it. That's really <laughs> where I think the, the heart of the right. book is. I didn't want to mm-hmm. spoil it. So I'll let readers discover that good stuff on their own. But um, I've loved talking with you. Are you working on anything else or are you just enjoying the publication of this one? Yeah, I'm just enjoying it. Brad. <laughs> I don't mean to, no. I don't mean to no, put pressure on. I know. You know, it's funny because we all, we all joke about this. As soon as one book comes out, everyone goes, well, now what are you doing? And it's yeah. Like, um, you know, sharpening my pencils. There's still there's still a big chunk of Megan 
that I feel like is a story not yet told. And so that interests me. I've never written a book with a sequel and maybe I, I will write it as a novella or short story or not. I'm also writing a bunch more sort of autobiography stuff and especially sort of around questions about identity and how do, how do, we, how do people claim their identity and how do we sort of move through a world where suddenly there's, you know, how we identify ourselves, how we claim space, stories we're allowed to tell and not tell become a big thing. So I'm interested in all that. And, you know, doing some writing about how to teach writing, the craft of writing. Uh, we'll see. There's a lot of things in the in the pipeline. All right. Well, uh, I will look forward to it. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and I That's wish you well. to talk to you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yes, and hopefully when I come out there, sometime I will see you live in person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I uh, I feel like I was listening to a clip of the show from a few years ago, pre-COVID, mm-hmm. and I used to do them in person a lot, right. almost exclusively. And I was just listening to the sound difference. And I was like, oh, that's what it sounds like when two people are in a room together. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Talking to each other, not, yeah, I know. Well, great to great to meet you Fantastic. and c- congrats again on this novel. And really just thank you. Be well out there, okay? All right, folks, there we go. That was A.M. Holmes and her new novel, The Unfolding, is available now from Viking. You can find A.M. Holmes on the internet at amholmesbooks.com. She's got a Facebook page and her handle on Twitter is at NYCNovel. Again, the novel is called The Unfolding. It's out there now from Viking. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Help keep it going. Support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can do so for as little as a dollar a month, whatever you can afford. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Take a couple of minutes to do that. If the spirit moves you, if you would like to sign up for the Other People newsletter, for my newsletter that goes out once a week, it's free. Just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Sign up for the newsletter. It's the same newsletter in both places. You can get my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, wherever you get your books in paperback, ebook, or audiobook editions. Again, I narrate the audiobook, and it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So get your hands on that if you would like to. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. The app is free, so go get the app. It's a great way to listen. I'm telling you, get the app wherever you get your apps. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel, so if you're a YouTube person, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. Find our channel and then subscribe. It's free. Click the subscribe button. All right? Uh, Yeah, I think that's it. Next week on the program, I will be talking with Morgan Talty, author of Night of the Living Res. It's the book club pick for the month of October. We're into October. It's Halloween. Everybody loves to talk about how much they love Halloween. Have you noticed this? I know it's great. I, I get it. But I think it's a little bit overdone because it's sort of the cool holiday. And people like to advertise that they are cool and that this is the holiday that they embrace because they're edgy and a little bit dark. You know what I'm saying? Enough already. All right. <laughs>